Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. No more freeways. This is amazing. Things that I learned. Actually, a neighbor of mine turned me on to this. And there is a movement going on here in Portland. I am embarrassed to say I was unaware. That has to do with an effort by the city and the county and the state to expand the freeway that runs I-5 that runs right up through the middle of our city here in Portland. A local movement of young people have come out to say no, and the reasons why are extraordinary. Aaron Brown is on the line with us. Aaron is a political organizer with No More Freeways PDX, and that's the website, No More Freeways PDX, PDX like in Portland, dot com, and No More Freeways on Twitter. I just retweeted their pinned tweet a few minutes ago. Aaron, welcome to the program. Tell us, first of all, what brought you guys together and how this got started. This really stems from the fact I've been working in transportation advocacy for, for almost a decade at this point. After seeing how many traffic fatalities we have around our region, the 40% of Oregon's carbon emissions that come from transportation, and the fact that freeways have never, ever actually improved the traffic congestion by widening the freeways, it became apparent to me that we need to stop spending billions of dollars on these projects when there are so many other urgent needs to address traffic mobility and just making our communities better. And so a group of us back in 2017 got together to oppose the project. And every year, our coalition has just gotten larger and wider. And we filed a lawsuit last year against the Oregon Department of Transportation for the Rose Quarter Freeway expansion. And just this month, the federal government rescinded the finding of no significant impact, suggesting that ODOT at this current moment no longer has federal approval to move forward with this project. So we're really excited by that news. And We're really just trying to suggest that as we prepare for the 21st century, we desperately need to be building infrastructure and we need to be spending every dollar possible on transportation investments that are good for our lungs, that are good for the planet, and that are good for our streets. And freeways are the exact opposite of all of those. And it goes beyond that. I mean, this is not just you guys being Luddites. It's not like, you know, oh, no, we we just don't like freeways for freeways. Um, I I remember for years, I mean, all the way back into the 60s, I've I've spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, and I remember the 405 growing bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, decade after decade. And it always seemed like maybe this congestion will stop if they just add another lane. But every time they added another lane, the congestion actually got worse. And I could never figure that out. And reading this article in Bloomberg uh, that Laura Bliss wrote about you guys called the Road Warriors, I came across this phrase, induced demand, that I'd never heard of before. Explain this to us. You know how every year Ben and Jerry's has like the free cone day, and on that one day there's like a giant line out the door because the ice cream is free? Yeah. Well, when we make road driving on roads free, people drive more. The more that we spend money on widening the roads, the more that people say, oh, you know, that commute during rush hour, or I want to go to the mall during the certain time, the road got wider. I'm willing to drive there. The unfortunate reality is is we cannot build the roads wide enough to accommodate how many additional trips people want to take. And this is not just some crank idea. This has been proven by literally decades of academic research in urban planning and transportation projections. So there's literally not a single freeway expansion anywhere in North America that has made traffic congestion any better. ODOT's own consultants in 2018 put out a report saying, yeah, you're thinking about widening the freeway, but it's actually the congestion pricing that's going to make a difference in terms of eliminating traffic. I mean, I'm sure many people are listening right now are stuck in traffic and they're like, listen to this grump that makes me want to pay money to do this instead of widening a road. And I'd ask you, how much money would you pay to never be stuck in traffic again? 
Well, right. ODOT is going to ask you to pay billions for that, and we're saying ODOT has never actually come up with a solution that makes this work. And to be clear, while I'm ragging on the Oregon Department of Transportation, this is true uh, ubiquitous across yeah, the United States. Yeah, this is 50 states. This it is, is very likely 50 your states. state DOT is doing similar things. Yeah, so the induced demand thing is like, okay, so we want to reduce, you know, we want to reduce congestion on our roads, so we're going to increase the size of our road by 20%, a lane to a five-lane highway. We're going to increase our road by 20%, our capacity for our road. Well, if you increase that road capacity by 20%, you're not going to handle just 20% more cars. You're not going to have 25% more cars or 30% more cars. It's going to make things worse. And, of course, all those cars are spitting out greenhouse gases that are destroying our planet. Do I have that right? Yes. And I would say, too, that you know we really need to be talking about the opportunity costs, right? Like, mm. we are definitely pro-investments in infrastructure. We want to be creating green-collar jobs. Think about how much space is taken up by 60 automobiles versus two or three buses as we're addressing the urban affordability on housing crisis, right? Like, there's so much urban space we could be putting towards alternatives than just rows and rows of cars being stuck in traffic and, as you said, polluting and putting not just carbon into the air, but also terrible air pollution. And even if we were to electrify every car within the next decade, which no one thinks is going to happen, we still are going to deal with, A, the air pollution that comes from tire particulates, not just from switching the engines, uh, but we'll still also be stuck in traffic. And it takes so much more energy to move those 60 cars than it takes to move three or four buses. Yeah. So by shifting towards a universe in which the basic investments in traffic safety, right, like in traffic fatalities are through the roof in the last two years, right? And that's, it's an epidemic of, of, of um, 40,000 Americans dying every year. We could be investing in basic infrastructure across communities in every state instead of dumping all the money into these freeways that do nothing for safety, that just keep people more stuck in traffic and miserable while stuck in traffic. Traffic sucks. Yeah. Uh, and not actually addressing any of the problems. Think about what the opportunity cost is of having a bus run every five minutes to the local school, to the downtown job center, to the hospital, et cetera. Oh, Louise and I had never lived in a big city before until we moved to, to Washington, D.C. about 15 years ago. And uh, it, we didn't own a car for the first two years we lived there. I mean, you know, we just sold the car because the, the metro, the, the, their mass transit system is just spectacular. And we lived about four blocks from a, from a metro station. It, it works so well. And I've, in every major city in the world that I've visited, I mean, you know, Tokyo, uh, you know, uh, Seoul, uh, Taipei, all, all, all across Europe. I lived in Europe for a year. Um, you know, and, and you very rarely use cars. You use mass transportation. And it, it's so efficient, and it's so much better for the environment, and frankly, it's so much better for human beings. I mean, just it just boggles my mind that, that, that we're still going down this road. So uh, we're talking with Aaron Brown. He's a political organizer with NoMoreFreewaysPDX.com, uh, hashtag NoMore, or excuse me, uh, at NoMoreFreeways on Twitter. Um, Aaron, for people who want to learn more about this, obviously, they can go to NoMoreFreewaysPDX.com, but... Is there a national movement, or are you guys the first? Is there a, a kind of a mothership for this issue? And and if so, where? And if not, how do we how do we build one? You know, that's that's a really great question. Um, one of the reasons that motivated me to get involved with this effort is the fact that relative to uh, uh, how important this is for climate. We're not talking about banning cars. We're just saying that our future should be shifting towards a universe where the one in three Oregonians who can't or don't drive have options to get around and that right. our investments are in line with that. But the problem has been that you know these freeways are very large projects. They often have bipartisan support because you know there's a lot of jobs on the line and people are not really familiar with induced demand. And again, congestion sucks. So like the average person who's like, yeah, just add some lanes. I don't care. I don't want to be stuck in traffic. Um, but we are seeing sort of a coalescence around the need to fight all these new projects. And this is all the more imperative because I'm delighted that the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed. Uh, there's a lot of money that state by state is going to be spent on projects that are either going to be really awesome or really terrible for the environment and air pollution and everything else. And we are going to need local advocates in every community. So there's a decent chance if you're listening to this, there's a massive freeway expansion that will cost hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars at a time in which transit service is being cut, traffic fatalities are through the roof, and uh, our traffic patterns are changing in a post, well, we're not quite post-COVID yet, but 
the ways in which people are commuting is changing, and therefore the infrastructure and uh, bus service we need is changing. So I would say that there's likely not a freeway fight in your community, and if so, we would love for you to start one. And um, we're starting to connect with folks in Houston and in Austin and in Minneapolis and other places, and just learning the tricks of the trade of how these state departments of transportation sort of put these flights of hand to say that these projects are necessary or how they sell them or the massive contracts that go out to communications consultants to mail things to the public that totally ignores the massive, hideous climate implications of these massive polluting freeways. So uh, in short, we don't have a national network yet. We desperately are trying to build one, just starting to pay attention to what your state DOT is doing and being a little bit more skeptical that adding more lanes has ever improved congestion. No, in fact, it makes it worse. I mean, that's that's the thing that blew my mind. Aaron Brown, political organizer with No More Freeways, PDX.com. Check it out. And in your state and your community, you know, reach out to Aaron and get some information about how you can do things. No More Freeways on Twitter as well. Start your local freeway revolt. Thank you. So there much you go. Time. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. This is the Tom Hartman Program. More of the news of the day. And actually, I got a geeky science for you. Is body fat linked to cognitive decline? Check this out. We've got a geeky science here for you that's just absolutely amazing. A group of researchers were looking at, actually, they started out looking at heart processes. And they had, this was a total... The volunteers' ages were 30 to 75 years old. The average was 58 years old. It was 9,000 participants. Out of these 9,000, 6,733 of them underwent an MRI that was looking at abdominal fat packed around their organs, vascular brain injuries, parts of the brain that might have been you know, damaged. And what they found was that, and, and they're unsure why. Nobody understands the mechanism of this. Probably the next big thing to dig into. But what they found was that the more body fat we have as we get older, well, not just older, but you know, throughout life, the more body fat we have, well, here, I'll just read you the sentence. Researchers from McMaster University report higher levels of body fat are a risk factor for cognitive decline, slower thought processing speed, and memory issues. Now, even after the research team accounted for cardiovascular risk factors like diabetes or hypertension, and they ruled out vascular brain injuries, the results stayed consistent. There was an undeniable association between body fat and lower cognitive scores. This strongly indicates, the researchers write, there are additional but still unclear metabolic pathways connecting excessive fat buildup to cognitive decline. Thinking, okay, time to take another walk. <laughs> it's time to, time, well, time to control, our, control our diet a little better. Anyhow, Martin in Seattle. Hey, Martin, thanks for listening to KCBS. What's on your mind? One good way to reduce body fat, and actually, I think it's been shown to help people live longer, is just intermittent fasting. Limit all your eating to about eight hours each day. You can have a big meal at the end of those eight hours, but just limit it to those eight hours, and uh, your body will actually uh, burn fat during the other 16 hours if you, you know, go long enough without eating. You can have water during that time. Just don't eat. I've pretty much lived my life that way, Martin. I, I, uh, when Louise and I were first married, we were really into being vegetarians, and we were also really into Arnold Errett. He wrote this book called The Mucusless Diet Healing System back in like 1920, and uh, it's still out there. It's still in print. His argument was that you should never eat breakfast, that eating breakfast was just a terrible thing. The body really needs to get up and get going and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, we just stopped eating breakfasts literally in the late 60s other than occasional saturday or sunday morning you know walking down to a nearby restaurant and and, and having breakfast as a social thing i never eat breakfast i i have not eaten today it is uh, almost noon here on the west coast and i have yet to have had even one bite of food and that's my normal day i, I find my brain works better and then i'll go home and i'll have a light lunch and then we'll have dinner around six o'clock and that's it and it's worked for us we've also tried the two days a week of 500 calories a day other intermittent fasting thing and that seems to work well too although you know the yeah, as long as you, you get the more of a struggle the body out, you know a little bit each day uh exposure to cold um mm -hmm. fasting things like you take a 30 second cold shower after you're done just uh, you, the idea is to stress the body a little bit yep uh, not too much each day and uh that's supposed not only helps you live longer 
uh, obviously with the fasting, you reduce your body fat. Uh, yeah. no, I, you're absolutely way. right. Or you shift it from white fat to brown fat, which is which is a good thing to do. Maverick in Edmonds, Washington. Hey, Maverick, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, welcome to uh, the year of the tiger, which is a great relief after four years of the comb over spray tan jackass. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, good morning, and the reason I'm calling well today said. is uh, because you had a caller, uh, I think it was Wednesday, her name was, I think her name was Mary, calling from maybe Houston, Texas, yeah. and the topic uh, for a lot of the day was the uh, teaching of cruelty uh, in, in school to children. Do you remember that? I do. Right her, well, just to recap up. real quickly, Maverick, her question to me was, Thank do you, you think that parents should have some control over the curriculum in their schools? And I pointed out that not preparing children for the world properly by teaching them evolution, which people like Mary historically have not wanted taught in schools, or not teaching them the actual history of America, the racial history and other aspects of the history of America, is child abuse. You know, and I said, why are you supportive of child abuse? You know, why do you want censorship in our schools? And she could not answer that question. So back to you, Maverick. You're quite the professional, Tom. Thank you. So that immediately brought to mind my Catholic upbringing. And uh, when I was on the south side of Chicago attending uh, uh, St. Barnabas Parish, I guess it would be called, uh, they were teaching me that uh, if uh, that half of my friends who didn't go to that church were going to spend eternity in fire, being tormented right. in hell because they didn't go to my church. Right. You know, you're a little kid. You kind of bury these, uh, these things inside of you. But I do remember being conflicted because I, I was taught this this fallacy, you know, from a religion that really is a cult of human sacrifice. And that sounds extreme, but I'm going to tell you why it is. Well, Jesus uh, was the sacrifice. I'm, well, so, I, I'm sorry, I short-circuited you. Go ahead, Maverick. <laughs> because Christianity celebrates the torture and sacrifice of a single person in Iron Age Palestine as though it were effective. Yeah. And by definition, that's a cult of human sacrifice. And then teaching that to impressionable little kids uh, is, is the same thing as teaching, you know, a false history. You know, you're sitting in church and there's what's right in front of you. Well, a and there's, there's, there's a subtext to it, too, Maverick, and that is that um, all of the problems of humankind are the result of original sin. Original sin was committed by a woman, Eve, Therefore, no woman will ever sit in the seat of the Pope. No woman will ever be a citizen of Vatican City. No woman will ever be a priest in the Catholic Church. No women, woman will ever hold power in that. And then that, I mean, that ruled the world for almost 2,000, well, for 2,000, 2,100 years now. And, and the consequence of that has been that pretty much every other institution that, that you know, these societies that were, were run by or influenced by that institution also denigrate women, keep down women. You know, they're also patriarchal and hierarchical in ways that are anti-female. You're absolutely right. And that, that misogyny never sat right with me, even when I was a young man, uh, still developing my own thoughts. Because, you know, these, this religion, they were written by men from an Iron Age, with an Iron Age mentality, when they still believed that burying a baby in a post hole was going to keep uh, some sky monster from knocking your building down. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the most free I ever felt in my entire life was a couple of years ago after wrestling with this for decades. I'm 56 now. After wrestling it for decades, when I absolutely became, I emancipated myself from celestial dictatorship I never felt more free in my entire life. And being a secular humanist, I'm not, my morality, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I hold doors open for people just because that's me. And I don't need some book to tell me that that's right. And anybody that might have an open enough mind to challenge themselves and challenge their own dogma, just read Leviticus or Deuteronomy, uh, any of the, and, and see if that type of cruelty is the way you want to make it. Oh, you want the cruelty, read Jeremiah. Or, excuse me, Joshua. Is, read the book of Joshua if you want cruelty. Or, or Isaiah. It's <laughs> yeah. terrifying. Well, Isaiah was. And then people say yeah. that they'll say that oh, the New Testament that was before Jesus. But you know that that obviates the the, the thought that it's the same God. Right. And also in the New Testament there wasn't eternal torment and fire until gentle Jesus, meek and mild, came yeah. in 
with the advent of well, the new Well, no, no, I think the, the, the eternal fire part, well, yeah, it's it's largely a Christian doctrine. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give oh you my that. Gosh. But but see, I, I'm Maverick. I'm of the opinion that you can look at a religion like Christianity. I mean, I was raised in Christianity, and you, you can do. look at that and say there's a lot of value here. There's social value. There's community value. There's actually a, a spiritual value here, and I don't have to buy. The, the, this theory of original sin. I don't have to buy the, the, you know, that we're all defective because of women and therefore women need to be suppressed in order to get some value from it. Well, I agree, but I don't have to know that Plato or Socrates or Aristotle actually lived to gain wisdom from the words that are assigned to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, uh, good point. I mean, there, there's, a, I, I think, a fair amount of evidence that Jesus did live, although that in and of itself is still a point of debate. But, you know, somebody... Well, why is he never? Why is he not referenced in any other literature in any other part of the world? Well, he actually... I believe he is, but, you know, the point is, what are the teachings? And they're, they're not inconsistent with the teachings of Buddha. They're not inconsistent with the teachings of... of uh, you know, I mean, it's just across the world's major religions. Spirituality is, a, is a, in my opinion, a different thing than religion. Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Um, yeah, I just want to mention that, you know, California had a chance for single payer and with the supermajority in the House, the Senate and the Democratic uh, governor. It's really frustrating. They got bought off by the uh, they couldn't even put up for a vote. So when, when did put out, uh, is this? A, was, a, 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 I know this happened a year or so ago. Is it, did it happen again recently? Yeah, the Nurses Association, the, the, you know, the union really fought hard for this. National Nurses and United? They, yeah, of California. And uh, they put they wouldn't even put up for a vote. So we don't have the votes, just like they always say that stuff. Right. And, you know, and Gavin backed down, real wimpy-like. You know, I, I like the guy. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect politician, as you say. But really disappointed in me that we couldn't do that. I mean, because we have 60 out of, almost 60 out of 80 of the senators, and we have, I think, or 60 out of the Congress, and we have 30 out of the 40 of the senators. Yeah. And we have, I mean, we couldn't get that through. I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm a small well, business owner, and we pay, my wife and I, with our my, my son, we pay about, you know, close to $40,000 a year and health care for our employee and ourselves and my son, you know, yeah. and and they're it's whining. The, the, math, the math doesn't add up. They said, well, it's good. You know, the taxes will go up $160 billion. With 40, 40 million people, that's not a lot. That's $4,000. So I, I, I have a question for you, Jeff. Um, sure, I'm sorry. N- number one, if a state, and this is, uh, you know, a friend of mine was running the Vermont Department of Health when, when Governor Shumlin passed, signed single payer in Vermont and tried to put it into place and discovered much to their chagrin that um, Medicare and Medicaid money would cease coming into the state and they'd have to pick up that huge bill and it would bankrupt the Vermont, you know, the state of Vermont. I mean, we actually have a state that passed and put into law single payer health care and they couldn't do it because of that. And Ro Khanna is the sponsor of legislation or one of the sponsors of legislation in the U.S. Congress to provide a Medicare and Medicaid waiver to any state that does single payer so that they don't get kneecapped by having to all of a sudden pick up the the full cost of everybody on Medicare and everybody on Medicaid in the state. All that money is federal money. And, And that would, I'm guessing, kill California, too. So a, it seems like that legislation would be more performative, or maybe that's the reason why they couldn't get enough votes, you know, to 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 put it to the floor. Um, you know, is is that what's going on? That that really we have to do the federal thing first, or is is this you know really an example of of Democrats being bought off? And if so, like my other question to you is, and, and Jeff, we only have thirty seconds. Is uh, is the California media covering this? I'm in Oregon. I don't get your no, media. You don't. You hear very little. I, it's on the local news, but it's not that big. You know, they they cut down. My I, one last thing, but I only have thirty seconds. I think we should put it on a referendum on the the 2022 ballot in November, just like we did marijuana and you know getting rid of governors. We need to okay. put that on a referendum, and uh, I'll get back to you on that. I'm gonna start trying to get some signatures. You know. 
and put on the, for the people to vote on it. That's the only way yeah. we're going to get anything done. And yeah. I'll look into that about the, the Medicare if that was the reason why they didn't do it. So. Yeah, because my guess is that it is. Because, like I said, I you know I used to live in Vermont, and, and one of my best friends yeah, was but, running mean, HHS in the state there. Well, but we're as big as Canada, and we have twice the GDP. I don't see why we can't. Which means you'd you know? have a multi-billion-dollar, you know, uh, Medicare and Medicaid bill. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a size. It wasn't size. It was Medicare and Medicaid with a kneecap. Patrick in Seaside, California. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today? Uh, hi, Tom. Um, I wanted, if you'll allow me, to um, list a few points of concern on my part, uh, and I actually wanted to know your thoughts on. Um, what is going to happen to our country if 2022 and 2024 go as badly as they possibly can? Because I feel like if you go from November 2020 to November 2022, I feel like I'm on, and we all are, this slow-moving train to hell, and no one's hitting the brakes. Um, my concerns are, well, a few. Um, I don't know how, I, I didn't, first of all, I don't see a lot of urgency with the Justice Department and the um, the Biden administration, I do with the House of Representatives. But, um, I, you know, first of all, I think there's a civil war inside the military itself. Uh, I'm afraid that if they take power in 2022 and 2024, and they can, they'll get away with as much as they can. I can see Trumpists rounding up all of us, Democrats, journalists, um, authors, politicians, media people. Uh, I could see them executing people in the streets on television if they, if, I mean, I, I see that's very unrealistic, but I mean, these people, once they get in power, oh, you think that's will, unrealistic? That's exactly what Kyle Rittenhouse did, and he was celebrated by the Republican Party. Now, I mean, like I said, I think there's a civil war within the military itself. I think um, you've got a long history, at least going back to the second uh, term of Bush Cheney and the book that came out, Irregular Army, where white supremacists have been intentionally uh, going to uh, military service and getting combat experience so they can come back and become killer cops. I don't know how... Um, I don't know how unconstitutional it is to ban Nazis and white supremacists from service in the military, intelligence communities, and law enforcement. It is not unconstitutional. But it seems like... Well, I mean, it seems like it goes against their oath to the Constitution. Everything they stand for is against the Constitution. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shana's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Constitution, uh, the late May Brussel was saying this for probably the entirety of her 17 year career in broadcasting, that this goes back to the uh, Project Paperclip Nazis being imported into our government and including uh, military and intelligence communities. Right. And in the that, late 40s you know, you're talking about when the OSS became the CIA? Well, I mean, the Project Paperclip people, you know, uh, right. Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty and the secret team said, you know, people would be shocked if they looked at the roles in 1955 and 1956 of the American Psychiatric and Psychological Associations. There were Nazis everywhere. Now, I'm not saying that these people actually had physical offspring, but it seems to me that fascists like attract like, and these people don't seem to have trouble finding themselves, and they get together and they plan like a thousand years in advance. Um, you know, my concerns are it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of urgency i don't know um the, you know it feels like the, that 
uh, Garland has had like at least a year to have indictments. I think that everything we know so far, they should be indicting Trump right now. But so what my thought, my questions for you are, what is going to happen? Are we going to just break up into 11 regions like the book American Nations? Is there going to be just, uh, yeah. are we just going to disintegrate? Is there going to be civil uh, war? Are they I, I don't, I don't see any of the, uh, pardon the interruption, but we're going to hit the, hit the break here in a second. Um, I don't see any of those scenarios playing out. I, I, I just, you know, I, the big divide right now is rural urban. And so, I, so in other words, I shouldn't start a GoFundMe uh, account to move to uh, New Zealand or get my Irish dual citizenship through my father and leave? I, 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 Ireland might be good, although they're having their own problems right now with Brexit. Bobby in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Bobby, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I have an idea I'd like to get your feedback on. We have a propaganda problem, as you know. Fox is a big uh, part of that. And just using them as an example, could we get uh, Congress to hold hearings, bring someone like Tucker Carlson in under oath, and uh, make it clear that he's either entertaining his audience and lying to them, or make him lie under oath and uh, face prison time? The tape... The, re- the recorded videotape of sessions like that might be very helpful to the Democrats. I think that if Congress goes after the press, it will be a bad precedent, uh, number one, although it has happened in the past. Um, and, and we look back on when it happened in the 1950s with the House on, on American Activities Committee and with Senator McCarthy's uh, hearings as well in the Senate um, with some horror. Um, and... Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that the, the, the flag that went up for me this morning was reading this article. Uh, I saw the link to it off Drudge. I don't recall where it was published, but it was on Drudge this morning. Um, in fact, it was the headline that Discovery, the Discovery Channel is in the process of buying CNN. And the, the head of the Discovery Channel just came out and said CNN is the leader, the, the news leader on the left. And I'm like, on the left? <laughs> and I, you know, I, I suppose, you know, you could say that, you know, their evening primetime lineup is, is people who are skewing at least Democratic and, and somewhat progressive. But, uh, you know, if, if their plan is to make CNN into a right wing channel or into a neutral channel, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned. Um, Fox, with, with regard to Fox, I, I'm with Kevin Rudd, you know, the former prime minister of, Muse- of, uh, excuse me, of Australia, who pointed out that uh, Rupert Murdoch poisoned politics in Australia. He called Murdoch the cancer on Australian politics, then went to England and poisoned British politics and, and the, or the United Kingdom and then, and then came to America and poisoned our politics here. Uh, you know, Fox News is, is news of by and for billionaires from by and for billionaires and multimillionaires. And uh, it need, I, frankly, I think it needs to be called out, but not not in the uh, uh, venue of Congress. That w- that would be concerning to me. Bobby, thank you for the call. Gar in Decatur, Georgia. Hey, Gar, what's on your mind today? Uh, I appreciate your program, Tom. Thank you. uh, first, I really want to talk about uh, the violence, but I want to mention a little bit about politics. One thing I think most Americans don't understand Politics in the USA is the largest industry in the world. It's a trillion-dollar industry. That's why you have so much. Everybody wants to stay close to the trillion dollars because um, they print the money. You know, they want to stay close to it. But the violence, okay, I want to talk about violence. Okay, uh, President Biden went to New York to talk about violence. I have to laugh when I hear him want to talk about gun violence. I mean, what's the old saying? The same thing can make you laugh, can make you cry. I mean, during Vietnam, that's when it all really took off, especially in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. Okay, like my granddad, he had a shotgun. He had it in the corner. Kids wouldn't go nowhere near it. My father had a gun. He had it in his drawer. We all knew it. No one would go nowhere near it. But after Vietnam, okay, I went went into the military. I didn't go to Vietnam, but I went in the military. During their basic training, they used to have us kissing our guns. And, you know, Vietnam was actually the youngest war. The average age during Vietnam was like 19 and 20. And they made the soldiers fall in love with their guns so much. And this is when your violence really started, especially in the African-American community. 
Yeah, the phrase I, the phrase that the the anti-war activists that I hung out with used was the war always comes home. Yes, and people just don't understand how it came. I mean, we used to watch Rawhide, we used to watch Rifleman, we used to watch Wagon Train, and you know they were violent programs, but we, there wasn't no gun violence. Yeah, well, and they and were so also morality tales, Gar. They, you know, Pardon? all those shows were also morality tales. I mean, they yeah, they, they were not. But the uh, gun violence didn't take off until after Vietnam. Yeah, uh, I know guys in my neighborhood. They used to bring duffel bags home full of heroin because they weren't checking. It wasn't checking drugs back yeah. then, yeah, and they would sell it. Guys, fifteen years old was holding hundred dollar bills and stuff. This is in the sixties. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's I, when that I, violence really took off. I, I, I get it, Gar, and and I think your your point about you know the war coming home is really really well taken. Thank you very much for that, Juan in Pacifica, California. Hey, Juan, what's on your mind today? I want to make an argument here to, to you, and I think to the public in general, because I want it to be more part of the conversation. That the filibuster and the problems with it fundamentally is that it's an unconstitutional rule that the Senate passed. And House members, rather than endlessly kind of complaining about it every time it becomes an issue, most recently with the Voting Rights Act, could actually bring a lawsuit if they wanted to today and, and, and try to make it happen. Are you an attorney? So, I am an attorney. I've been in okay. practice since 2001. Cool. Okay, um, go ahead. Okay, so, so here's the argument. Basically, the Senate can pass its own rules, and that's in the Constitution. But it's well-established law in, in this context and otherwise that you can't hide some substantive violation of the Constitution, like upsetting its balance of power, through, through the disguise of rules. And so what, that's exactly what the filibuster does. It flips the balance of power in the Constitution on its head by effectively, especially the silent buster, I would say, giving the Senate a supermajority voting power. That's a tremendous amount of extra power that the Senate gives itself compared right. to the House, right? And so here's the, the layout for why it's unconstitutional, basically. If you read the Federalist Papers, it's very clear, you, you can find it at least five or six times, that they wanted majority rule in Congress, both the House right. and the Senate. But the Federalist but, Papers are not law. They're, 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 that was correct, a sales pitch. Correct. But they, they can very much go to intent, though, and often are cited in federal cases to, to kind of demonstrate the intent of something or other. Okay? Right. And the intent here is, does the Constitution require majority voting in both, uh, in both chambers? And I think the answer is yes. The, the other aspect of that, the Articles of Confederation were supermajority. It was tearing apart the, the early country at the time. And, and there was this specific effort to get away from that. Here's the other kind of very legal interpretation of that. The Constitution has, I think, six or seven times where it explicitly lays out where there is supermajority voting rights. Okay, right. and so and one of one the of most them. obvious ones, yeah, the overriding a presidential veto is the most obvious one, and then we recently saw how impeaching the president is another right. ratification and, of so amendments. A, yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's this basic premise in in, in law that if, if if something says as to specific things one thing then nothing else is part of that concept, right? So th that's the basic legal argument. You know, I would say it's actually been tried before in 2012 by uh, House members along with some private parties in, a, in a, a case called Common Cause versus Biden. Biden was the named person because uh, as VP, he was he over, over, um, he over was president of the Senate. Senate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so anyway, the, you know, the case law, there were four House members, including John Lewis, that joined that case with Common Cause. I think one of the key mistakes they made actually was including private parties in there uh, and a few others. But regardless, that, that case actually um, in the D.C. Circuit didn't win. But there's enough literature now by some very smart attorneys, I think, out of Chicago, employment lawyers, but also constitutional lawyers, that make the case as to how this is distinguishable. Um, and I would love to see, you know, I, I, I see so many complaints from House members, but basically just pointing fingers, you know, at, at senators like Cinema Mansion. You know, in my opinion, these people are in bed with, with wannabe oligarchs. They're, 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 oh, yeah. they're, they're, they're puppets. Yeah. They're puppets. What about, they're never going to be convinced. Juan, forgive the interruption. I'm, I'm looking at the clock here. And I, I'm, it, course, what yeah. about Article 4? I mean, Article 4 in the Constitution says that the, the federal government shall guarantee the states a, a Republican form of government. Now, it doesn't say that the federal government itself has to be run along Republican principles. Um, but, you know, Republican form of government was widely understood at that time to mean majority rule. So uh, is, is there anything there? I mean, that, that could be. Used? I think that's a great point. Yeah, I, I think that would have that could have some room in, in, a, in a lawsuit uh, on this front. That's, yeah. that's a great thing to bring up yeah. as well. Yeah. So, yeah. so do you, do you know of anybody who's talking about doing something like this with a lawsuit? 
Um, I do. I think if you actually Google Common Cause v. Biden, you'll find the most recent articles. I did, there is actually a growing number of attorneys trying to convince House representatives to do this. I think apolitically, cool. I think it would actually be smart for progressives. <laughs> so I hope to see it happen. Cool. I would, I would encourage you to reach out to Ro Khanna, you know, Congressman Khanna. Okay. He's, you know, yeah, he, he I, just I, call I his office and, and yeah, see if you can establish a dialogue. Or for that matter, Juan, you know, the next time Congressman Khanna's on the air, just call in. And you can talk to him directly on the air. Or Congressman Pocan, for that matter. John in Hillsborough, Oregon. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? It's about the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I, about some years ago, I watched his um, film made in England, and it was um, showing the um, categorically how a thermal nuclear war accidentally happens. And this film actually takes place in the Middle East, but it's between Russians and Americans, or NATO. And um, it just, I, my hair stood up in the back of my neck about some of the well, relations of this film towards what's going on now. The name of the film is called Threads, like threading a needle. Mm-hmm. Um, you can access the film by just going to um, research or whatever on your apps and just, you know, key in the threads. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't want to see the movie, um, you can Google it, and there's a pretty good write-up about it. Yeah. But it, it's not just about... Was this, uh, was this a novelization? I mean, was this fiction? I mean, uh, yeah, fiction. A, it was a, docu- opposed to a, docu- a docudrama. Yeah, okay. Docu- there was a narrator. Right. Um, um, telling the people how each stage happens, and also it does a social thing about it, how the people, um, this happened in, uh, they used a, a, a city in England called Sherfield, mm-hmm. and they gave all the technical data of Sherfield, and then it was going about the politics, about what was going on, mm-hmm. and and how people were trying to resist it, but of course everything went on a lockdown. Yeah. Uh, it's not a feel-good movie at all but uh, but it but I'm what I'm just trying to get across about how everything the genesis of about the two sides started to build up and then something accidentally happens yeah and, and so well, that's what happened uh, with World War one uh, well okay all right but this was um, a little bit more you know up-to-date yeah and et cetera. But uh, the whole thing, it had the confrontation of U.S. troops and Russia. And so I was just kind of thinking what's going on right now, you know, on, on Ukraine. So. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I just wanted to, I'm just trying to get it off my chest because it's, you know, kind of bringing back bad memories. Yeah. Um, but the film was really kind of well done, even though on the technical part, well, you know, you have to think about 38 years ago how, you know, things have changed a little bit technically. But uh, but the gist of the film was talk, um, went into the whole, you know, step by step of how things led up to um, a fight, a shooting war. Yeah. And um, and then it was just talking about the politics, the the people, um, you know, whatever, discussing what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, anyway, I, I I'm just trying to, you know, like. 
Yeah, and and just, right, right now, you know, uh, President Putin is in China hanging out with President Xi for the Olympics. And my understanding is that uh, Putin is basically saying, we'll support your uh, efforts to take Taiwan if you'll support our efforts to take uh, Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Or maybe Xi said it or whatever, but they, you know, this is kind of joint communique. I don't know if it was a formal one, but it was in the news this morning. Um, yeah, I, that, I, I, I'm not sure that that's going to raise tensions. I mean, it may even kind of lower tensions, well, um, given that it's like, okay, now we've got this Cold War situation. Um, but yeah. I, you know, I just don't know. I, John, I, like you, I'm, I'm watching the situation with concern. I yeah. think the whole world is. Well, anyway. Bill in St. Helens, Oregon. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind? In, in relation to the filibuster, I just would like to point out Article 1, Section 3, the Vice President of the United States shall be the President of the Senate, but shall have no vote unless they be equally divided, kind of like where we're at right now. And the gentleman should pay attention to the fact that that takes that power, that vested power away from the Vice President. Anyway, my, my topic. Oh, that's interesting. Another argument for, for no filibuster. Good one, Bill. Yeah, it takes it away. Why, why, give, her, why give the Vice President, that, the President of the Senate, that authority if, if they can't use it every time a bill is filibustered? Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, so anyway, uh, I got an opinion question for you, but it goes like this. 1876, multiple slates of electors uh, submitted to the Congress. Congress passes 1887. They pass the Electoral Count Act, saying they have the authority to decide which slate to pick. My opinion, Tom, totally unconstitutional. The simple answer was just to say we won't count any slates of electors from the state with multiple slates because we have no way to do it. An impossible, you know, patent impossibility. All right. The problem but, with that, though, is that the the Constitution requires a an actual majority of electors. And what happened in 1876 was that with uh, Oregon and the three southern states, I think it was Mississippi, Florida, and Alabama, as I recall, um, they, they lacked, both candidates, Tilden and Hayes, both lacked enough electors to hit that 50% plus one. Well, but where I'm going to is fast forwarding. Now, as I watch this last little machination, uh, this last election, now somehow that's morphed into both houses being allowed to vote on the slate from every state. So my question to you, opinion, of course, so what happens 2024 comes, Republicans have got control of both houses, and just blue state after blue state, they just reject the electors. So, nope, we're not counting those. Then what happens? Well, under the current it's, law, it's, that's, it's that's, that's a possibility. But it's really not, because it's, it's unconstitutional legislation. Oh, I agree with you, and it would probably go to the Supreme Court, but look at who's on the Supreme Court right now. Okay, one quick point on the Supreme Court. Being as a private citizen can never assert executive privilege, why didn't the first court Trump went to, I'm gonna, why didn't the first court that Trump went to say, there is no case here, you asked me to hear a case about whether or not you have executive power as a private citizen, there's no there there. There's no provision in the Constitution. I thought they did. I thought he had lost every single every single case all the way up to the Supreme Court on that. But, but my point was the court should have never heard the case. He had no standing. What was the standing? I'm an ex Oh, they should have rejected it uh, on the on the basis of standing. Huh. I'm guessing that they that they figured that, you know, this is a former president. This is an issue that is uh, dividing the country. It really needs to have, uh, you know, it needs to be heard. And yet it was Nixon that came up with the whole concept of executive privilege in the first place. So now we're arguing whether or not an ex-president has a power that a previous president asserted and we kind of graciously went along with. There's some Are questions you sure of that, there. Bill? I thought executive privilege went way before Nixon. I don't think so. I think it started with Nixon. Huh. You can take a look. Yeah, I, I would have to look that up. I, 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 I just frankly don't know. Bill, thank you. Uh, good food for thought. I appreciate it. Saul in Seattle. Hey, Saul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to call and say thank you for everything that you do. And as a newly politically active millennial, your show's had a great influence on me. Great. Thank you, Saul. Tell your friends. You're welcome. Of course. I've been telling everybody I work with. Cool. So uh, we have one minute uh, to the end of the hour, Saul. What's on your, on your mind? Perfect. I'll make it quick. Uh, I don't know how much you know about Greek mythology, but I wanted to point out that during the events of the Titanomachy, and how Atlas was punished for fighting against Zeus. And his punishment was to hold up the, uh, forever the heavens, right? Right. And that kind of leads me to my point about the title of Atlas Shrugged. And if Atlas shrugs, doesn't that just mean he's shirking his punishment, his responsibilities 
which is so typical of liber libertarians. Oh, interesting. I mean, you know, obviously when Ayn Rand used that title, she meant, you know, uh, what's his name, Rourke? No, uh, John Galt. Uh, you know, was the, the billionaires are leaving, basically. <laughs> you know, the world is going to collapse. The billionaires right, are the atlas that's holding everything up. Right, and that's what we see happening today. Well, no, I, I would say, you know, the billionaires haven't gone off to Galt's Gulch today. Instead, they're taking over the government and everything else. Well, you know. that's what, but the, like our ideas that are higher up there are like crashing down, which is why progressivism oh, maybe isn't saying. getting as much steam. Yeah. Good point, Saul. Good point. Hey, thanks a lot for All calling. Right, have a good one. Yeah, you of too. And, have a, and, th and thank you for uh, listening to the program. Wendy in Patascla? Ohio. You got it. Patasqua. Okay. Tom. What's up? Okay, Tom. This is an SOS. I got my Republican sister here who's taking care care of me. I'm a Democrat, of course. And so we were running through the gamut of issues, and I can't sell her on anything. And, and of course, I'm not buying what she's because she's getting all her news from Tucker Carlson. Now, let me tell you, she's a very smart woman, mm. and she will listen to reason. Could you please explain to her? She's saying that she's not in with all the debt that would be caused by Build Back Better and the infrastructure plan because she worries that her, you know, her daughter will be stuck with the bill after we're gone. And right. so I was trying to say, well, no, they're going to be paid for by taxes on billionaires and so forth. It's true. She said, well, yeah, some of it, but not all of it. No, and then, all by of the it. way, she was also talking about ballot harvesting and Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's oh, computer, which I couldn't believe she's still bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. Well, first me? of all, if, if she's worried about legislation that's going to add to the national debt, which is kind of fundamentally displays a lack of understanding of how the how it all works. But in any case, if she's worried about legislation that's going to add to the national debt, she should have been opposed to the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Republicans voted for. Because that bill, that $1 trillion bill, raises our national debt by between three and $400 billion. About half of that bill is borrowed. The Build Back Better plan that Joe Biden is proposing is 100% paid for by raising taxes on people who make more than $400,000 and setting a corporate minimum tax across the country for all these giant corporations like Amazon that, and Facebook and whatnot that make, or Apple, that make billions of dollars in profits, report to Wall Street billions of dollars in profits, and then you know, tell the government, they, they, oh, we didn't make anything, and they pay nothing in income taxes. So he, the, the Build Back Better is fully paid for. Say what? He's saying the CBO says otherwise. No. That, well, the, <laughs> the, the question that was put to the CBO by the Republicans in this context was very narrowly worded. And it, it was sort of like, if this bill does this and it does it for this period of time in this way, then would that, could that at any point add to the debt? And the answer came back, yes, under those conditions, yes, it could. Um, but the way it's laid out more generally, no, it wouldn't. I mean, th this is a great example, Wendy, of the old saying, I think Abraham Lincoln is generally credited with saying it, that figures don't lie, but liars can figure. And and, yeah. and and that's what's going on. So, no, the, the, the CBO, the initial CBO scoring of the bill was that it was it would not impact the national debt. And and, you know, that's out there. That's the record. Then the Republicans came back and said, well, what about if this happened? And what about if that what if there was a I don't remember, frankly, what the what the caveats were that went into that second yeah. CBO score. Um, and maybe there's been a third one. But the bottom line is that, no, it's 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 paid for. And even if it's not paid for, you, you liked the infrastructure bill, you liked the rescue plan. They radically added to the, the rescue plans, in particular, the one that Donald Trump signed. That radically added to the national debt. Trump put $2 trillion on the national debt with his tax cut. George W. Bush put $5 trillion on the national debt with his tax cut. Ronald Reagan put at least $10 trillion on the national debt with his tax cut. I mean, over, over a 30, 40-year period afterwards. So uh, you know, it's, it's the tax cuts that are causing the national debt. In fact, just the Reagan tax cut, the Bush tax cut, and the Trump tax cut, those three tax cuts, if none of them had happened, there would be no national debt right now. Wendy, i got to run, but thank you for the call. I mean, we had a 74% top tax income tax bracket, and corporations are paying 50. Mark in Finlay, Ohio. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? I'm such a t uh, fan of your show, Tom, that I'm afraid my friends think I'm in a Mark cult watching your show. I refer to you so often. I'm calling we today. We really because, aren't a cult, uh, Mary. I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we really are not. Good. I'm glad to know that, too. 
I'm calling because on The View this morning, they had Mark Cuban as a guest, Mm -hmm. and he was promoting his new website, costplusdrugs.com. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds just fantastic. And and this is, I'm referring back to, I was inspired to call because of your caller in the last hour on the drug prices being so bad. Mm -hmm. This potentially will be a tremendous help to people on insurance or Medicare or whatever they have, yeah. uh, the prices, I went on and looked at it, the prices are so low. Uh, they give an example of a drug I never heard of um, on their website. It's imatinib, mm-hmm. which I have no idea it's how to pronounce. It's an insuppressant, yeah. It said that um, for a 30-day supply with them, it costs $47.40. And the retail at other pharmacies is over... It's almost $10,000. I can hardly believe oh, it. Wow. it that that, be that drug isn't what I thought it was. Um, yeah, no, what Mark Cuban is doing is he's cutting out the middleman. And what this reminds me of, Mary, was uh, back a little more than a decade ago, uh, we got an advertiser on this show, and I, I, the president of the company wanted to talk to me. Um, and it was a, a company that was doing you know, alarm systems for your home. It's called, it was called Simply Safe. And uh, they sponsored our show for about a year or so. And I talked with him and he was like, you know, this whole industry of, of alarm systems for homes is like a, a, a giant con. You know, you subscribe to these things. They make money over a long period of time. They install their equipment in your house. He said, I'm just going to sell people the equipment. They don't have to pay me any more money. It's just a product. And, and he disrupted that industry really, really badly and, and you know, led to a dramatic redu- reduction in cost across the industry because you know one one company had come along and said we're not going to do it the way everybody else is doing it and that's what cuban is doing um i and, and i'm guessing probably he's going to get some competition from amazon now that they're in the pharmacy business too and i think that this is a, a, a time and a point in time where the whole that whole industry has been badly disrupted charles in fernandina beach florida am i saying it right charles there was a paper about maybe 15 years ago, it was called a National Strategic Initiative. It was by two Pentagon officers. And they posited that our current, and and still current now, posture of just building more military weapons than everybody else was the best one, was no longer a a, a real viable option. It, it It wasn't something that would work in the future. They said that a highly educated, highly healthy population is the best defense a country can have. And uh, from that, and they suggested, and I'm passing that suggestion on, health care and education be part of the defense budget. And if we make it part of the defense budget, along with the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the Coast Guard, the Space Force, then it might be more palpable for a lot of people to take. To yeah, I think you're right. In, the, in, a, in a macro sense, the, I, I would not be all that comfortable, though, getting my health insurance from the Pentagon. Would you? Well, if you, if you wouldn't come from the Pentagon. It would just be, it would be budgeted. Oh, it just goes under that umbrella of the defense, of the defense under budget. Under the defense, because it's critical to our defense to have a healthy, educated That's population. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Charles, if you, if you can find that article and tweet it to me, I'd really appreciate it. Um, uh, I can't, Tom. A national strategic initiative. A national strategic initiative. Okay, I'll, I'll see if I can find it. Charles, thank you very much. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind? Why the banks would not give loans to black veterans under the VA is because there was still segregation. You had white areas where people, white people lived with power, water, gas, sewage. And the areas where black people were assigned, you know, you can go live over there, particularly on the floodplain, like here in Montgomery. Mm-hmm. You can go live by the railroad tracks, go live by the garbage dump. But you cannot go live in a neighborhood where there's, there are white people. And that's where the water, the sewer, the power, and the natural gas lines were. But where you have water, you also have fire plugs. Without a fire plug in an area, you cannot really get any type of homeowner's insurance to cover fire or theft or wind. And so without insurance, and of course because you are black, you will never earn enough money to pay the loan off, you can't qualify for a loan. Instead, this also had a social impact because if you have to walk to the river 
or the creek or community well every morning to get water, take it home, and heat it up. This takes time out of your day. And if you don't have power or natural gas, you're also cooking and heating with wood or coal, which you have to acquire, which also takes time out of your day. And you also have to use a outhouse. And so you also are emptying the bucket from under the bed in the night every morning. And if you want to take a bath, you have to heat the water, which means more more wood or coal. And so this was one way of discriminating against black people across the South. This made their day longer, it made their day harder, and it made it harder for them to keep themselves clean. And therefore, you can't have those people in your home. This is one of the cruelest things they ever did. This is one of the cruelest things they ever did. And also, of course, the bus lines, when they started having buses, did not go into the black neighborhoods. They had to get downtown to the main terminal and ride the bus to go to work. Right. Norma, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Spot on. I appreciate it. You always bring something. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.